over a thousand generations of Jedi Knights and Guardians of Peace, Justice, Welcome back to A People's History of the Old Republic, the world's only international, Old Republic-specific Star Wars podcast. Thanks to our listeners in Canada and Australia. That's cool as hell. I'm really, I, I really mean it. That's really cool. If we have listeners elsewhere in the world, thanks to you too, but the podcast met podcast metrics don't work so well for old-fashioned mom-and-pop podcasts like ours. Last time, we got very excited about a dead guy named Momin and embraced the dark side because it was our destiny. Now, in episode 9, the Great Sith War engulfs the galaxy, but we have our first real, actual, canon Old Republic news and talk the trailer for Star Wars Episode 9, The Rise of Skywalker. I'm Luke, that's Kelsey, and there's always a bit of truth in Legends. So we have to get to the most important thing that came out of the Star Wars celebration, which was Kathleen Kennedy's non-committal comments about using the Knights of the Old Republic property. Um, during an interview following the celebration, Kennedy told MTV News, quote, You know we talk about Knights of the Old Republic all the time. Yes, we are developing something to look at. Right now, I have no idea where things fall, but we have to be careful that there is a cadence to Star Wars that doesn't start to feel like too much. End quote. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I've, I've been, yeah, I've been super excited since I found out. Um, like uh, bouncing off the walls excited. And uh, it's just because it's the first like uh, real Old Republic news, like addressing it by name. Um Obviously, you know, they've they've referenced it before, but this is the first thing that they've uh, the first time that they've addressed it by name since uh, the property was uh, uh, was purchased. And Kathleen Kennedy responding to it uh, on MTV or to MTV News is is a really big deal. Um, Now, we could take this with a huge grain of salt and remember that even if something were already in production or pre-production, uh, Disney probably wouldn't say anything yet to avoid spoiling any of the buildup for episode nine. And as an industry courtesy to Game of Thrones producers, D.B. Weiss and David Benioff, if they are in fact overseeing the Old Republic series, uh, as the rumors have suggested. But I'm still just going to be really excited about it and hope I don't get let down. So, yeah, pretty excited about all that. Absolutely. I think it makes one of it's it's we had obviously no inside knowledge of anything when we were starting this podcast and to have um not just our hints and guesses and inferences of old canon filtering into new canon, but also to have like, well, maybe they will actually dive deep into the part of old canon that we are talking about right now is mm-hmm. pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Um so the other the other thing which you know Maybe didn't get quite as much attention. You maybe only saw the few like of the deeper nerdier blogs, but uh, there was a new trailer about the next and final movie of the original trilogy of trilogies. Um, so you know that's that's not nothing. The uh, Star Wars Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker. Um, so Luke, what did you what did you think um, about the trailer or the title? 
Um, I am, uh, I'm cautiously optimistic about, um, about, about it after seeing the trailer. Um, I don't have any specific gripes about, um, about anything in it. I just, um, you know, I'm nervous about how everything's going to play out and how everything's going to be wrapped up. Um, uh, the rise of Skywalker. Um, I, I don't, it, it's not the, the best title, but I guess it's, uh, it's not, you know, a huge deal. And I'm guessing as other people have guessed as well, um, that the Skywalker probably refers to, um, how Ray will rebuild, uh, the Jedi order into something resembling, um, you know, what it was, but hopefully better. And in other cultures within star Wars, they call force sensitives skywalkers and they don't really make a del- a lot of them don't make a delineation between light side or dark side users they just call all of them skywalkers the chist do this and there are examples in legends as well um so i'm i'm guessing that's what they're getting at but at the same time i mean they could um you know there there could be uh there could be another skywalker you know kid to come along and you know and any any sorts of stuff like that. What what about you, Kelsey? Did what did yeah, you? So think? I think I think we're um, in in the very uh, on a similar page here. Um, I thought the I thought the trailer looked fantastic. I want to start with that. I think. Um, oh yeah, yeah. I think just it captured. It managed to do all the things we love it in Star Wars, which is you know a return to a desert planet for some reason. It has. Um, some very atmospheric fights. It has the sense that this is a universe with a past um, and not just an old past, but a recent past. I, I think my favorite site is still um, the, uh, the death star in that ocean um, yeah. on <laughs> Endor or somewhere. I don't know. I'm very excited to see all of that. Yeah. So I think it looks good. I am um, expecting to have a delightful time. Um, with it, and uh, at least to be visually, and the characters have been great. I've been really enjoying those arcs of a new trilogy. I think um, my hesitancy is all around the title, and I think the best possible case is that Skywalker becomes a title like Jedi was a title or like Sith was a title, but that Skywalker is a a kind of a person and not just a person of this specific family. Um, and I think that would be the most clever end to the Skywalker saga if we see it go from um, trying to bend four sensitive people into a old order that doesn't work, trying to rebuild the order after it got wiped out, and then trying to just make it so that understanding the holistic vision of the Force to carry people forward. I think um, that's interesting. I think the least interesting thing they could do with it would be like make uh, Ray related to um, to the actual Skywalkers, um, and I've seen other theories floating around, and maybe they're going to mess with clones. Um, Palpatine's laugh suggests no. either a Sith <laughs> ghost, or um, we'll get to it way, way further when we are the uh, people's history of what was the future of um, the New Republic. Um, yeah, <laughs> with that time, we can get to it, but the. Star Wars Legends has done a lot with weird Force clones and things. Um, and I don't know if that's the direction to go or to throw into the last, the capstone film. 
Um, but it's early. There's a lot to see. I am. Um, I trust the cast, and if Skywalker is a title and not a lineage, I will be super happy about it. Yeah, I I, I agree. I um, I don't know. I'm I'm fine. I'm fine with Palpatine being there as a spirit. Um, you know, I'm I'm fine with part of the de- part of the second Death Star having fallen to um fall into Endor, the planet or the moon. Um, you know, I'm fine with that. If they, if they introduce the clones in the, the final film of the saga. Oh, I don't know about that. Uh, I do not. I don't know. I mean, anybody who's listened to this knows that, that, that we're fans of, uh, you know, Tom Veitch's work. Um, I, I am especially Tales of the Jedi was the first thing that really got me into the EU. But um, Dark Empire, you know, it, it's fun, but there, it's not, it's not my favorite thing. I'll say that it, it has a lot of problems, and you know. It, in-universe problems, I mean. Um, and we could talk about all that later if that comes up in the movie or if not. And, um, and and that's all good. I mean, if they don't, if they avoid that and they avoid like trying to retcon raise parentage somehow, I mean, I'm sure I'll be happy with it because J.J. Abrams is pretty good at spectacle. I'm just, I'm nervous about those, you know, those are some big ifs to me <laughs> yeah and it's it's we're at we are at the the first trailer season of it there's a lot more yeah 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 to yeah. know and to see i think um i know my gut reaction was to go back and find that ken jennings tweet about uh jd abrams having kylo ren rebuild the mask but if it's not kylo ren's hands doing it then that's a far more interesting story and there's plenty of room to flesh huh. out and to see yeah. Um it is uh as as I think our effort show, it's a very deep and rich universe. Um Yeah, ex- exactly. Yeah. So, on to the canon? Uh briefly before sure. uh before we move on, um one more piece of information that came out that is actually very specific to this podcast. Um the Old Republic MMO will release a new in-game expansion in September 2019 called Onslaught. Uh, the developers have promised that the content will be free to all players uh, and includes new itemization and customization options, as well as a return to Dantooine. Neat. Um when this gets added to the Legends con- continuity, we will certainly update you and uh, we'll include a link in the uh, description. So, back to our tale, which is recounting Tales of the Jedi, the Sith Wars by Kevin J. Anderson, uh, published in 1995 and 96. It's a six-issue comic arc. Um, well, Tom Veit departed LucasArts after the Dark Lords of the Sith. Um, he had helped work with primary writer Kevin J. Anderson to plot the first two issues of this series. Um, and the two writers had originally outlined the in- entire 12-issue arc before they started Dark Lords. Dario uh, Carrasco Jr. was brought in as the lead artist for this run, taking over for Christian Gossett. Anderson took the reins and did an admirable job completing the core run of the Tales of the Jedi series, which began with 1993's Ula Keldroma and the Beast Wars of Onderon. However, 
This arc does introduce a few continuity issues, both of its own making and later retcons to the work. Um, an example of internal continuity issues, the multiple attacks on Chemplex 9, which we will discuss in greater depth when we get to that part of the story, as they will make more sense in that context. An example of external issues and retcons is the Mandalorians who are introduced for the first time here. They're described in the Sith Wars, a monolithic race of gray-skinned near-humans, later named the Tong, who hailed from the planet Mandalore. Knights of the Old Republic, and of course many later works, would uh, change much of Anderson's initial description. The Mandalorians were changed from a singular species to a group of clans comprised of members of any race, though the group was, you know, still mostly made up of humans. They still followed a mercenary warrior religion and were led by a single leader known as Mandalore, but uh, most of the other details were altered. The Tong, though heavily prominent here, were almost entirely written out of Star Wars, with the species being portrayed as nearly extinct and one of the only surviving members in the galaxy being Mandalore the Indomitable's successor. Uh, so LucasArts has been futzing with the Mandalorian since long before the Clone War. Characters. All the surviving major players from Dark Lords of the Sith Return, including Ulit Keldroma, Exarkun, Nomi Sunrider, Kay Keldroma, Tot Danita, Ali Makito, Silvar Krado, Dace Diath, Curl Tuck, Shoaneb Kulu, Os Willem, Thon, Voto Siosk Boss, Ud Benar, Odan Ur, and Vima. New characters include Mandalore the Ultimate, a fierce Tong warrior and leader of the Mandalorian people. He rose through the ranks of Mandalorian culture to lead the group sometime before 4000 BBY. The Mandalorians followed their canons of honor, which required them to find worthy foes to face and set other rules for their lifestyle. The Mandalorians used highly advanced weaponry, much of which they looted from their conquest. In 4002, just prior to the events of Ulit Keldroma and the Beast Wars of Onderon, the Mandalorians sacked and occupied Kuar near the Empress Tita system. The Tongs were later retconned to have been a precursor race that inhabited Coruscant at least 200,000 years before the Battle of Yavin. Along with the Zell, the progenitors of the human race in the galaxy. Sometime around 200,000 years before BBY, the two species fought a series of wars with the Zell winning and the Tong fleeing to the planet Rune before eventually conquering a planet in the Outer Rim and renaming it Mandalore after their leader. At the time of the wars between the Tong and the Zell, Coruscant was called Notron. No, we just think you should know that. We also have Supreme Chancellor Cydrona. He's the leader of the Republic and a member of an unknown species with gray skin and a face that much resembles Lovecraft's Cthulhu. Cydrona presides over the trial of Ulit Keldroma. And finally, we have Mandalore the Ultimate, the Tong's successor to Mandalore the Indomitable. He's in the comics for one panel, taking up the previous Mandalore's helm on Duxun and proclaiming himself their new leader. Despite only being here for one page, he will become one of the most important figures in galactic history. So our timeline is uh, 3,996 BBY. Um, again, that's before the Battle of Yavin, and it's six months after the end of Dark Lords of the Sith. The new locations to this story are Quar, Forest, 
Chemplex 9 station and the Kron system will revisit um, previous locations like the Empress Tita system, Ambria, Osses, Coruscant, Yavin 4, Dantooine, and Duxun. Um, while the Sith War begins by stating that six months have passed with the Sith-Kreth alliance spreading out um, from the spreading out some from the Empress Tita system, a 2002 video game Star Wars The Clone Wars retconned this time period entirely. The story in the game revolves around a separatist plot to reassemble an old Sith superweapon called the Dark Reaper and its main component, the Force Harvester. Um, so that's the... Uh, the third superweapon in the Old Republic thus far, if you're counting at home. Anakin travels to Renvar and meets the Force ghost of Ulic Kaldroma, who tells him of the Dark Reaper and how to defeat it. Ulic gives some background. Exar Kun unearthed it on Yavin 4 as another creation buried by Naga Sadao. Ulic made a number of feints in the Outer Rim and told an old Sith space to confuse the Republic before unleashing the Dark Reaper on some worlds, including Rax's Prime, where it killed thousands. The weapon worked by absorbing all force energy from life forms in a radius, killing them and turning that energy into destructive blasts. Exar Kun then dreamed up a plan to destroy the Jedi, which Ulic disagreed with for some reason he couldn't understand and covertly alerted the Jedi, telling them how to withstand the weapon and stop it. Uh, the Jedi did this successfully, but instead of hurling it into a sun or black hole, they you know just buried the pieces of it on different planets. You can Always trust a good super weapon removal plan that just leaves the pieces for someone to reassemble. All right, the main story. Six months after their union began, the Sith and Krath have begun to conquer worlds surrounding the Empress Tita system. Mandalore the Indomitable, seeing the Sith forces are stretched thin and their weaponry is still outdated, launches an attack from Kuar. The Mandalorians are prepared to nuke the worlds of Empress Tita, of the Empress Tita system. But Ulit Keldroma parlays with Mandalore and the two agree to settle the issue in single combat. The two will fight on Kuar with the rules chosen by Mandalore so that Ulit has no mount and cannot stand on solid ground. Ulit balances on chains high above Kuar while the warlord Mandalore flies a basilisk war, dro war droid in firing at the Sith Lord. Ulit uses his lightsaber, not red, by the way, to destroy the droid, with Mandalore then challenging him to use a common melee weapon. Peldroma agrees and is attacked by an axe, <clears throat> losing his footing and falling before riding himself and taking up a Mandalorian sword. Ulic's attack against Mandalore is so powerful he knocks the warlord to the ground, and Mandalore then awaits his execution. He's ready to die. He's, he's a warrior. He wants honor, and he is ready for Ulic to be the next Mandalore. True to his word, the Mandalorian warriors bow to Ulic, but the fallen Jedi has a better idea than killing one of the greatest warriors in the galaxy. He wins the entire Mandalorian fighting force to his cause, including Mandalore the Indomitable. This will prove to be the only thing that saves Ulic's life in the near future. Now, the Republic and Jedi are facing the combined might of the Sith, Krath, and Mandalorians. Meanwhile, on Ossos, Exar Kun has some nerve. After taking a vacation and becoming the Dark Lord of the Sith, he casually returns to the Jedi Library world with a modest task. He wants to recruit 
many young Jedi to his cause and add many Force sensitives to his ever-growing army. Exarkun stands in one of the squares and feigns still being a Jedi, telling many onlookers that he found forgotten Jedi, not Sith, powers and artifacts. He's just changing out Sith for Jedi on everything in his stories, and that's that. The uh, Jedi are not particularly known for their fact-checking. Kuhn plays on the concerns that many younger Jedi have, that masters have grown complacent with Arca, letting the dark side escape Onderon and being outwitted by Freedom Nat. So Kuhn produces a Jedi amulet, one that was fused to his arm from the ceremony on Yavin 4, that shows a true accounting of the destruction of Nad's spirit. It backs up his claim that he is more powerful than the old masters, and the many young Jedi should come learn from him alone. Leaving them to discuss, Exarkun goes in search of his other reason for being on Ossus, which is Odin Ur's Sith holocron. Elsewhere on Ossus, Nomi and Vima learn from Odin Ur, who teaches them more on the use of battle meditation and of dark side battle meditation, where Sith meditation spheres are mentioned for the first time. Nomi wishes to grow stronger and not repeat the mistake she made on Onderon when she was felled by dark force power. Odin Ur then teaches her how to cut a Jedi off from the Force completely, if necessary, by creating a wall of light. The Old Master calls this the strongest weapon the light side has against the Dark Jedi. He also implies that he had to use it long ago in the Great Hyperspace War. As Nomi and Vima leave to meditate on these things, Exar Kun arrives. Knowing the Holocron, the only known Sith Holocron at the time, could only be opened by Dark Lord of the Sith, Odin Ur was perplexed when it began to glow, and then flew out of his hand towards Kuhn. The ancient Drathos thought, fought back, noticing how dark the supposed Jedi was. He drew upon the light and threw Exar against a wall, but it was not enough. Kuhn drew upon the Force and inflicted great pain on Odin Ur, who realized he could not fight against such darkness and became one with the Force. Odin Ur died an ancient Jedi master surrounded by his books, just like his master, Uru, had predicted millennia before. Moments later, the Jedi rubes who fell victim to Exar Kun's scam come in looking for him because they are ready to serve their new master on Yavin 4. They see Odin Ur's robes and staff, ready, but Exar Kun says he simply passed due to his old age, but not before making Kun a Jedi master and giving him the Sith holocron. The Jedi rubes, of course, believe this. But Mandalorians alone are not enough for the Sith to conquer the galaxy. To this end, the Mandalorians sack the highly advanced and very large Republic shipyard at Forost, easily defeating the relaxed guards at the station with a little help from Alima's Sith magic. After this raid, Ulic Kaldroma is now in command of an army of Mandalorian warriors, the Kraft soldiers, and 300 new Republic warships, all with nearly zero casualties. Ulic co- contacts Exar Kun from Ferost after his successful strike, and the two Dark Lords have a moment to catch up via hologram. While Kaldroma has been busy building fleets and armies, Exar Kun has recruited 20 Jedi to his cause, forming the Brotherhood of Sith. Uh, the 20 only include, um, as named members, Os Willem and Krado. Um, for now, um, XR plans to build slowly over time before announcing themselves to the galaxy, but Ulik has a different idea. With a fleet this size and warriors as strong as the Mandalorians, he intends to strike directly at Coruscant to show the Republic how weak they truly are 
and end and end the war very early. Kuhn thought this was a foolish idea, telling his apprentice that there would be no rescue if he was captured. But Ulick could not be dissuaded from his course with both Mandalore and Alima backing him up. However, Ulick has battle plans of his own, burning out all the computers except for one difficult to find Holovid. that talked of an imminent attack on Kemplex 9 in the Kron system near Ossus. After the Sith forces made off with their loot, the Republic investigates and General Vasinus, who helped Ulick and Nomi when they first fought the Krath, discovers that the pirate leader who has been raiding the Republic for six months is none other than the fallen Jedi Ulick Keldroma. Vicinus alerts the Jedi and Republic immediately, both to the identity of their enemy and the coming attack on Complex 9. The loose alliance arrayed against the Republic now includes two Dark Lords of the Sith, one Krath Enchantress, the Mandalore, all Mandalorian forces, all Krath forces, 300 advanced Republic warships with enough personnel to run them, 20 Jedi converts to the Brotherhood of Sith, three bases of operation in Kuar, Empress Tita, and Mandalore, and one hidden base on Yavin 4. And now we have Canon Alert 12. The planet Forost was made canon in a book, Battlefield Twilight Company, which was released as a companion to the 2017 video game Battlefront 2. Later on... Yavin 4, Exar Kun is having trouble with his new brotherhood as Os Willem and others feel the dark side is strong on the planet and sense a problem. The Masasi are also keen to attack the strange force users, but the Dark Lord steps in, orders the warriors to cease, and convinces the initiates that he believes they can cleanse Yavin 4 of the dark side together. After he's avoided the riot, Exar Kun reas- Exar Kun assembles his brotherhood before the Great Temple and makes a speech, before revealing the Sith holocron from Odan Ur that he intends to destroy as a sign of his immense power that the Jedi have over the dark. This is, of course, a ruse, and Kun's destruction of the holocron instead unleashes dark magic and spirits that infect the Jedi rubes, turning them into Sith acolytes beholden to Kun's will. All present are infected except Krato, who had already sworn allegiance to Exar Kun earlier. Kemplex 9 is important to the Republic. It is a hyperspace jump beacon and large city station that served as one of the only inhabited locations in the entire Arul sector, the same sector as Asus. Star Wars uh, Galactic Geography Refresher, many planets comprised a system, many systems made up a sector, many sectors were combined to form an oversector. Um, and we can include a map in the show notes. Uh, you'll recall that we've discussed the advances in hyperdrive technology began making jump beacons obsolete shortly before the Great Sith War. They were still used by many in the galaxy, especially in the Outer Rim. As a jump beacon in the Outer Rim and an inhabited station that's also in the same sector as Asus, the Republic took Ulik's threat on Complex 9 seriously and sent most of their fleet there to defend. Yeah, it's starting to sand a little bit, maybe a lot, like the Battle of Coruscant that uh, opened Revenge of the Sith. Anyway, a detachment of Jedi have just arrived on Coruscant to convince the Senate to allow them to deal with the pirates raiding Republic shipyards. Master Vodo, Nomi, Kay, Todd, Silvar, Shoanab, Dace, and Kroll Tuck are on the ground long enough to learn that the pirate is none other than Keldroma and... Shonab has a vision of a major attack coming out of hyperspace seconds before it happens above the planet. 
Well, at least she had the vision. She can say she can say she warned them. You know, I mean, she doesn't have to say how early she warned them, but you know, fighters and starships savage the planet as the Republic raises what little fleet it has in the area to defense. The Sith Mandalorian Krath forces will invade Coruscant on the ground with a large force to divert attention from their real their real goal. In command, Ulik orders the Mandalorians to send 100 stout fighters along with 100 Krath warriors to aid as they attempt to reach the Republic Command Center. Mandalore the Indomitable mentions prototype weapons his spies have heard the Republic is building near there and wants to get his hands on them. Ulik initially objects, but Alima casually says to let the Mandos have their toys and Krath warriors supply all the men for Ulik's command center assault. The Jedi are also attempting to reach the Republic command center, but are having to fight warriors and protect terrified citizens every step of the way. Ulik and Alima don't meet the same resistance, easily making their way, especially with Alima's use of Sith magic. Ulik and the Krath warriors have entered the command center unopposed, and he's forced choking men until one of them orders the entire Republic fleet to jump to the same location, which would run all the ships into one another, destroying the fleet. I want to be clear. At this point, Ulik has won. He's defeated the Republic, and the Jedi won't be able to fight through all the Krath forces and Alima in time. He's done it. He's captured the galaxy. Once his order for the, fe- the fleet is accomplished, the Republic will be nearly defenseless with only a small group of Jedi left to defend Coruscant. Except for one small problem, nothing really. It's just that Alima had been plotting Ulik's downfall since the beginning and decided to enact her plan just as Ulik was about to seize galactic power. The Krath Empress intends to usurp her lover's position and power and leave him to the Jedi on Coruscant. Her betrayal is well-planned, but astonishingly ill-timed, because she's got more money than sense. The Mandalorians, who were loyal solely to you, who were solely loyal to Ulik, had conveniently all been sent to scavenge weapons instead of backing Ulik's assault, which meant Keldroma had no loyal warriors at his back. Alima orders all craft forces to pull out and lies to Mandalore, telling him that Ulik has been killed to induce his forces to retreat. The Jedi, confused by their good fortune, crash Ulik's party, and Master Voda leads them in using a wall of light to temporarily shut him off from the force. Ulik is taken into custody for trial before the Senate, where he will be judged guilty for war crimes and sentenced to death. Brief aside, it's not right that Alima seeking power herself is bad, that's fine, more clap, female clap, Sith Lords clap. Um, seriously, more of them, please. The canon could absolutely use it. Uh, the problem is the implementation and strategy. Why why not betray Ulik later and then they usurp power after they rule Coruscant? Or really any other time than when he's literally grasped total galactic power but hasn't consolidated it. Um, but that's what makes a betrayal. It's what makes it the high stakes. Um, and it's also clear that Exar Kun doesn't particularly care for Alima He's not in on this plan, so why wouldn't he just kill her and install a different fallen Jedi? He's got 20 to work with. Uh, This is all fine, because we get to one of the best set pieces in Star Wars history out of it. The trial of Ulic Keldroma. Because the least realistic thing in the Old Republic is that someone is actually tried for their war crimes. Yes. 
And we should all remember the one golden rule of Star Wars. They will put anything anywhere as long as it looks cool as hell and then come up for a reason behind it. And that's what they did here. Before the trial begins, we see a number of pieces moving into position. On Dantooine, Master Vodo has meditated on the Force long enough and knows he must attend the trial on Coruscant. Vodo seems to be the only one aware that Keldroma didn't really choose to become a Sith, despite being a misguided doofus and now committing unspeakable crimes. Vodo repairs his walking stick that Exar Kun once destroyed in their fateful lightsaber battle and thinks on his failure as the former master of the new Dark Lord of the Sith. He successfully tests the stick before departing, determined to make amends. On Sinegar, Mandalore the Ultimate is brooding over their defeat and how his master was so easily captured. Mandalore is not only an implacable foe on the battlefield, but also as a detective, apparently. He analyzes the battle, looking for an explanation, and comes to suspect Alima betrayed them. Mandalore goes to Alima to discuss this strategy for freeing their captured leader, but she's uninterested, instead telling him not to worry about Ulic and using some Sith magic in an, atu- in an attempt to seduce him to her cause. This is where the aforementioned Complex 9 inconsistencies begin. Alima's charms are apparently successful on Mandalore to a degree, because she orders his troops to Kimplex 9 to attack it. In the comic, we see them jump to the system, and we're told that the Mandalorians follow, follow her orders to the letter. Whether the attack went forward without destroying the station is unanswered, but it remains intact and occupied, as we will see shortly. Mandalore, however, still has lingering doubts after Alima's decision not to help rescue Ulic and and his review of the Battle of Coruscant, and destroys the engines of his ship flying to Yavin 4 for help from the one person in the galaxy who would give it. There he finds Exar Kun, who has just sent his Sith acolytes out to kill their masters, except Krato, who has been sent to help the possessed Asuilum with Thine. Exar states that he will deal with Vodo himself. Mandalore tells Kun that the Mandalorian duty and pride demand he rescue Ulic or die trying. And Exar agrees to assist as a means of teaching both the Republic and Ulic lessons. And now, the trial of Ulic Keldroma, a play in three parts. Part one, the plea. The trial is one of the most impressive set pieces outside of the movies and plays out entirely in the Senate chamber on Coruscant. Um, in real time, it was released four years before the prequel, so the trial also gives us a first look at the Galactic Senate in Star Wars history. Um, it honestly looks a great deal like the one in the prequels, but with stadium seating and no hovering pods. There are fewer systems in the Republic, so it's smaller than we're used to, but it looks like an old Republic that would predate what comes 4,000 years later. The defendant will be detained in the center of the chamber by chains and guards, overlooked by Supreme Chancellor Sidrona and some others who are seated on a large central pillar. Though Sidrona officiates the trial, the entire body of the Senate will sit in judgment and determine Ulic's fate. It's all very much a sham, as Ulic has been told he'll be found guilty and put to death for his crimes. But what are you going to do? For the story, the trial begins as Nomi and Kay rush to the Senate chamber where Ulic is being led from his cell, where he is kept in solitary confinement in total darkness. Kay and Nomi are hoping to prevent Ulic from being killed somehow, but find him filibustering the Senate about the coming golden age of the Sith and the downfall of the Republic. Kay, not one to stand idly by seeing his brother's failing, 
steps onto the Senate floor to serve as a character witness and defense attorney. Kay enters a new plea, telling the Assembly that Ulick is not guilty by reason of spells, torture, and Sith poisons. The two brothers bicker between themselves, as is their wont. When the doors of the Senate dramatically open and the trial gets its first surprise witness, Exar Kun. Part 2. Closing Arguments Not content to fight, a Jedi, to fight a Jedi Master when the Senate is empty, or remove the Supreme Chancellor through a convoluted plot involving trade federations, Exar Kun has derived, arrived during the trial on purpose. Before entering, he cast a Sith spell on everyone in attendance but the Jedi, paralyzing them so that they could not move but also could not look away. Nomi, Kay, and Silvar all attempt to stop him but are rebuked by Exar, who uses the Force to release Ulic, which occupies the Jedi. Exar Kun, meanwhile, wakes Sidrona and sinks his fingers deep into the Chancellor's skull, forcing him to puppet Kun's words about the Republic's doom. The two Dark Lords share a Force vision about the coming Golden Age of the Sith with a Grand Palace on Korriban. Ulic bids any senators who want to join them to do so. Then Exar Kun releases Sidrona, killing him instantly, and claims that this was all done to show how weak the Galactic Republic truly was. The Dark Lords appear to have proved their case before the court and look poised to escape. As the senators and guards are still frozen and Kay is unable to either confront or join his brother. But the trial of the century has one final shocking twist, even more shocking than the last. The prosecution calls a surprise witness it didn't even know it had, as Master Voto also dramatically enters the Senate in a final attempt to stop this madness. Voto, however, is not there to pass judgment on Ulit Keldroma, but instead proclaims that Exar Kun is the true enemy of the Republic. Silvar and Nomi attempt to intervene on Voto's behalf, but this meeting was foretold. They must duel alone to the death on the floor of the Senate. Part 3, Sentencing. Vodo and Exar both attempt to convert the other because a duel needs bluster, but this will not be settled by words or some petty redemption. No, possibly the greatest living Jedi master and teacher, an ancient walking and talking crab using a patchwork walking stick, will face his former apprentice, the current Dark Lord of the Sith who just murdered the President of Space on the floor of the most well-known landmark in the galaxy. If it sounds ridiculous, it's because it is, and it's going to get better. The duel begins in front of all the galaxy with Vodo parrying Exar Kun's brutal lightsaber attacks, while Vodo's less frequent attacks are also blocked. Just as on Dantooine, Vodo can match his student using one lightsaber. Still blue? I guess they didn't have enough time to get the red crystals. Um, but if you're better with two, right, you might as well use two. And sure, Jerkai is fine, but Exar Kun is an innovator, so he activates a trap card no one in the galaxy has seen. After blade-locking Vodo, the Dark Lord twisted his own lightsaber hilt, extending it and ignited a second identical blue blade, showing off the first double-bladed lightsaber in the Star Wars. The Jedi are stunned. Master Vodo tried to rely on the dark side, on the light side, but failed. No training the Jedi could have had could have prepared him for this weapon. The double-bladed lightsaber is less precise and quick than the standard, but it makes up for that in damage-dealing ability and power. The twirling of the hilt creates more room for punishing opponents. Vodo vowed to defeat his, apprentice, his former apprentice at some point, but in the end, Kuhn's speed and sheer ferocity brought an overhand attack down, splintering Vodo's staff and killing him instantly. 
The old master then became one with the force on the floor of the Senate, leaving Silvar enraged. The Sith depart and the Sith curse is eventually lifted, but the galaxy is terrifying. Is terrified. It's also terrifying. The trial of Ulic Keldroma ends in a mistrial. The defendant goes free. It was later stated that Kuhn learned the double the double blade design from the Sith holocron and modified his lightsaber accordingly. Until 3996, the weapon had only been used in Sith space and was sometimes called a Sith lightsaber. And now we have Canon Update 13 in what I'm sure you all know is the, uh, the least surprising one. Although he didn't get to animate it, Christian Gossett initially conceived of and designed the first double-bladed lightsaber when he, Veitch, and Anderson were plotting the 12-issue run that became Dark Lords and the Sith War. Gossett thought that lightsabers should be, quote, honor weapons, end quote, and that they would be unique to every user, which is a concept he employed with other characters such as Tot Donita, who used the first curved hilt, and when Nomi built her first lightsaber. Gossett and Anderson introduced the double-bladed lightsaber to George Lucas and were surprised at how much he loved it. The double-bladed lightsaber was, of course, famously used by Darth Maul in The Phantom Menace and would become a mainstay of the Star Wars franchise after. So this is a way-back update, but it still counts. After the trial ends, Exar Kun, Ulic, and Mandalore retreat to the still-secret Sith base on Yavin 4. Mandalore tells Ulic that his defeat on Coruscant was due to... Alima's betrayal, and he has proof. Ulik confesses that Alima had always manipulated him, initially through torture and poison, then into love, but eventually he was also duped into killing Satal, which increased Alima's power greatly. Keldroma swears revenge, but decides against using his lightsaber. Alima, seeing Ulik, feigns excitement and hugs him. She asks if he will be leading the next attack, but Ulik defers, giving Alima the honor. While Ulik coldly hugs her, He's deeply troubled by a memory of the farewell kiss he and Nomi shared before he departed to infiltrate the Krath and the dark side. And with that premonition of Ulix or the memory of Ulix, you know, we will finish for now. Um, there's much more Kenyan to discuss in the future. Thank you all for listening to A People's History of the Old Republic. Next time, we will draw the Great Sith War to a close. We will maybe make it to a KOTOR prequel prequel comic and we will finish out the tales of the jedi um and hopefully even answer some reader questions please rate comment and subscribe to fotor on apple google or wherever you listen to podcasts thank you for the five star ratings on itunes ratings and comments help the show and we really appreciate them you can follow us on twitter at fotorpod or email us at fotorpodcast at gmail.com send us questions and comments and we may answer them on the show we hope to I am Atherton KD on Twitter. And I'm at Luke is Amazing on Twitter. Thank you again for listening, and may the Force be with you.